The 12 days of Christmas are more than just an annoying Christmas song. In fact, it's the time period between Advent and Epiphany. Now, as we talked a lot about last month, Advent is the time where we as the church await the coming of Christ by looking back to how the people of Israel looked to the, uh, the coming of the Messiah the first time. And Epiphany is usually the celebration of Jesus' baptism, but it signifies the beginning of the work that he does in this world. So what exactly is the time in between? That's called the 12 days of Christmas. It's literally the 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany. Historically, this has been a celebration of the time it took for the three kings to travel from their kingdoms to meet Jesus. Now, in reality, it actually probably took them a couple months. But the church calendar and church history has used this time to be a celebration of the coming of the Messiah. And they do this through having a feast night every night of the 12 nights. For example, St. Stephen's Day, also known as Boxing Day, uh, the church would open up the alms box and distribute all the collections they got throughout the year to the poor. It's a great Christmas present. Uh, today is actually the feast day of St. John the Apostle, where people just bless wine and drink to the remembrance of John the Apostle, the loved one of Christ, because that reminds us how Christ also loved us. Now, every night is a celebration, but it's also a challenge. And it's a challenge to prepare your heart and mind for the work that's going to come starting at Epiphany. Now, this all culminates up every night until the 12th night. The 12th night, the celebration is called the Feast of Fools where the social paradigm is literally turned onto its head. For example, a altar boy might be bishop for the day, or uh, a peasant would be made the Lord of Misrule. And all the rich people serve all the poor people like the poor people do all year round. This is an extreme change of the lens, and it is a reminder Jesus brings an upside-down kingdom. But what does this upside-down kingdom look like beyond this? Well, we saw in the video earlier about Luke chapters 1 and 2, how the birth of Christ was not much special. I mean, he was born practically homeless in a barn. And I don't know if you've ever been in a barn, but it smells terrible. And then they put him into a manger, which sounds sweet until you realize what exactly a manger is. It's a feeding trough. That's where cows and goats and sheep will lick and grab hay and slop with their disgusting mouths. If that's what my son was born into, I really have a problem with the conditions. But... That's the life that Jesus comes into this world with. Not only is he just poor, uh, Mary, story of being a virgin, that probably wasn't believed by most people around her at the time, probably even close to her. So to most of the world, Jesus is just some poor baby born out of wedlock. Nothing much is expected out of him. But that's not the end of the story. 
Luke and Matthew show how this paradigm of someone that shouldn't have a kingdom at hand really is the king, and they flip everything on top of their head. Now, follow along with me in Matthew chapter 2. You can read it along in your, in your app if you would like. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or kings from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, let's pause there for a second. What's actually happening is three powerful heads of state are coming weeks, maybe months out of their way in their busy schedules to come visit a baby. That's a little weird. Given what we know already about the circumstances around Jesus' birth, that would be like if Xi Jinping, Queen Elizabeth, and Vladimir Putin decided to take time out of their busy schedules and come visit Carter uh, my son, when he's born in June. That would be weird, but that's what we see here. And then we continue, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Let's pause again. The King Herod is threatened by this baby's existence. Again, what kind of baby can actually threaten a king? That, again, a little, the analogy is starting to fall apart because differences in government systems, but that'd be like if Governor Abbott all of a sudden felt threatened in his political career just because my son was born. That doesn't make sense. Why, why should it? But Matthew is starting to help the reader understand that this is a different kind of king. There's different values in place. Let's continue. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired them, King Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, the three kings went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Three heads of state, worshiping a baby. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Some scholars estimate that those three gifts at that time and that place of the world would have been worth upwards of a million dollars, maybe even as much as two million dollars worth of today's standards. This would have changed the first family's fortunes from being that poor homeless group into someone that really had the possessions of a king. And Matthew is showing everything is being flipped upside down on its head. As the gospel progresses and we move toward 
epiphany and the works that's going to come out of Jesus' ministry, we see that Jesus is always challenging every one of his disciples to start thinking with a different value system, to start turning everything upside down. Uh, my economics professor had an illustration to help us do just that. Uh, he would ask the class, class, what is more valuable, water or diamonds? And everybody would go, well, duh, water. Or sorry, diamonds. Water is like four bucks at a ballpark, but diamonds are like thousands of dollars, some are millions. But then he paints the picture a little bit more. Two days into the desert, you're dehydrated. What's more valuable then? Water or diamonds? And then everybody realizes that water has the power to bring life, and diamonds are just a shiny rock. A lot of us don't realize that when God calls us to this upside-down mentality, he's telling us to leave our North American mindset behind where water is meaningless and diamonds are everything. He's telling us to go into the desert where the diamond is meaningless and the water is everything. See, as the gospel progresses, we see Jesus live a lifestyle just like that. He shows us a kingdom where the king isn't on a high horse, he's riding in on a donkey. The king isn't distanced away from the people. He's literally touching the lepers, the people that can give him a disease. He's not inviting the scholars and the government leaders to a table to get more honor for himself. No, they're not even invited. He's bringing lowlifes and prostitutes. I've talked a little bit about my time at Our Calling, a homeless ministry and how that has impacted me. Probably the most impactful day that I had on the job was the day I had the opportunity to talk to a homeless transgender prostitute. And she just had such a broken heart. She didn't know how in the world she got into this lifestyle, nor did she know how to get out. And I didn't offer much, but we prayed for her. And that stuck with me. But what stuck with me more was later in that day when I realized I couldn't tell anybody around me about the experience I just had. Because I've had many people from different churches tell me that people that are even better than her, they don't deserve your help. They don't deserve your compassion and love. They made those choices and they need to suffer and live that way. You should focus on helping better people, whatever that is supposed to mean be honest, that's not the life that Jesus calls us to live. Jesus calls us to change our entire priorities and love the least of these. So I'm going to go back. How in the world are we supposed to celebrate the coming kingdom? It came. How are we supposed to celebrate it? Well, we celebrate the 12 days of Christmas when we start living out his values. We do this every time that we go to uh, not just feed the homeless, but to go dine with them and learn about their lives. We do this when we go care for the refugees and the people that have nothing. We go when we reach out a bridge to those who have done us wrong. And we, we celebrate the values when we care for the least of these. We do it when we lay down our power, and we do it when we lift others up.
God calls us to change the world into this upside-down kingdom. We look and prepare ourselves for the work that Christ has for us. But in order for us to do this, his values need to trump our own and the worlds around us. I pray today, God, that all of us begin to see your world the way that you see your world, that we see your creation the way that you see your creation. God, change our values to look more like your values and less like the world's. Move your spirit in us to make this a reality so that we who have been saved by your son can also show the saving grace to others. We pray this in his name, our Father.